0: Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL, where you truly do hear from legends. And of course we've got Mary Elizabeth Bowden, a legend in the making here with us this evening. Mary Elizabeth, good to have you with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And uh, of course I, I wanna start out, I gotta make sure that I, I give Austin Custom Brass credit for sponsoring these interviews. Uh, do you know Trent? Have you dealt with Austin Custom Brass yet?
1: Yes, I know Trent from Chosen
0: He's the best, isn't he? He's great. He's great, and don't you love all the videos he's been putting online? Right, I mean, he's it's like every day there's a new trumpet, a new cornet, a new mouthpiece, a new toy, right? That he gets out there and he promos, and it's and he's such a great player, right? So it's it's fun to to hear him talk about it, and uh, but of course uh, Trent and everybody at Austin Custom Brass uh, will take care of you, uh, the service, the products, all of that, just top shelf stuff. So. Trent, thank you. Uh, you of course, you can, go to, you can go to austincustombrass.biz to find out more there. Uh, of course, I want to tell you about some upcoming interviews. Of course, we had Alan Vazuti last week, right? May is just turning out to be uh, a spectacular month. Uh, of course, Mary's here this evening. Uh, next week, we've got a guy who can barely make it out of the staff, right? This guy named Wayne Bergeron. It, you know, should be interesting. Of course, I'm being funny with that. I'm trying to be funny with that. And then uh, the last week of May we have Bijan Watson. I'm really looking forward to uh, talking to him. I haven't met him yet, so it's all gonna be uh, fresh for me. Uh, But if you guys know more about him, uh, hopefully you'll still enjoy that interview. Uh, Let's see, oh, I've got to show a couple of shirts. I'm still trying to, to promo these shirts. Mary, I don't know if you've seen this yet, but the World Trumpet Force, right? The WTF, right? Born from 2020. Uh, any idea what "ventilabis magis" means? This Latin phrase down here. Blow harder, right? If if ever a trumpet community needed a phrase, a motto, that's it. <laughs> of course, you can get those shirts at studiohfl.com, which is a nice little segue into if you want to get the shirt studiohfl.com merchandise. merchandise uh, if you want to sign up for the newsletter studio studio and uh let's see oh of course uh patreon you you're welcome to support studio hfl by going to patreon.com studio hfl and checking out the four tiers of support available there so that takes care of the the business side of things and mary uh do you want me to call you Mary or Mary Elizabeth?
1: Mary is fine. I do have a question of uh, where the live stream is right now because I'm multitasking and trying to share it on my page.
0: It should be on the Studio HFL YouTube channel and Facebook page. All it right. should be going to both of those at the moment.
1: All right. I don't see it, but I'll have to look for it later then.
0: Are you are you looking on uh,
1: the Facebook fan page studio? On Facebook. Yeah, Studio. Oh.
0: Um uh, so let me see about this. See if I can I don't know if I can change this during. Oh, it looks like I set it up to go to my uh it's going to my my page. So yeah, if, if you want to it's actually everybody, it's going to my page, Larry Powell, um, not the not the uh, studio HFL pan, fan page. that's my my error, but I'm not sure I can change that midstream here so um, but I'm, I can still share that after the fact. okay, of course. Um, okay, so it, it's been a couple of years since we talked.
1: I think so. I can't believe that that much time has passed, but I know this whole year has been a little bit strange with feeling time.
0: (laughs) A a little, right? I mean, uh, I I don't. It's still hard to remember what day of the week it is right now. Um, Much less, you know, we used to be able to mark orchestra season right with the orchestra finale or the grand opening concert or Christmas concert, and it's like none of that happened. So all of those milestones or markers throughout the season, you know, weren't, weren't really there. Um, But I will say you have done a remarkable job of the social media presence, right? You have certainly uh, Instagram, Facebook, where else are you? Are you a Twitter tweeter?
1: Yeah, I try to sometimes, but I'm not, I'm not super connected in the Twitter world. It's mostly, mostly Instagram and Facebook.
0: But you had already been doing all of that before this, right? I mean, you were really engaged in that.
1: Yes. And uh, when everything shut down, I wanted to stay connected with audiences and also stay inspired myself. And so right off the bat, I did the hundred days of practice. And I organized a few large video, virtual video projects and participated in other people's projects and, uh, And I also formed uh, the Apex Trumpet Symposium with my husband and our friend, Nathan Warner. And so we are doing our third session this summer, and that's been really successful and uh, really fun to put together.
0: Yeah. You know, can we start there with Apex? Sure. Sure. Yeah. uh, So the genesis of this, was it because of the pandemic or was this something already in the works?
1: Well, Nathan called to just chat with me last August and mentioned the idea of we should form some kind of trumpet symposium or something someday. And I was I was like, let's just do it now. And if you give me an idea, I usually will make it happen. So right away we started an LLC and we came up with a name and crafted our first eight-week course. And so we did that in the fall, and we had about 25 students and then We just did, we did a 10 week one in the spring and now we're having like a summer intensive week which will be June 13th through 19th. We're about half full right now. So we still have some spots open but we have some exciting guests including uh, Witten Marsalis, Phil Smith, Tina Ting-Helseth and uh, Selena Ott and Kyla Moscovich. So it's, we're really excited about that week.
0: All virtual or any in-person students?
1: all virtual. And then we're, we're talking about for next summer to find a way to, to meet in person, uh, somewhere in the States. So we're scouting out locations for that too.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so is, what is this kind of like a, an ITG kind of event where you've got master classes and coaching or concerts or all of the above?
1: Well, I think when we do it in person, we want to keep that community aspect of it being pretty small. So I think, you know, 20, 25 students is a good number uh, to aim for. That's worked well for the seminar that we've had online so far. So everybody can get to know each other and it becomes this special community.
0: You know, it's funny. You mentioned community. I think trumpet players are a pretty amazing community. I think Um, we
1: have handled the pandemic really well. I have not seen any other instruments have so many... Interviews and festivals around the world. I've done dozens of masterclasses all around the world from this spot, and I think that's what I—that's what I really love about the trumpet community—is everyone's just the excitement is still there despite fourteen months of isolation.
0: And, and as a stereotypical a trumpet player can be, you know, with the ego and the and the braggadocio and all of that. I mean, I, that. It hasn't really come out, right? It's been the support and the, you know, everybody's cheering everybody on through all of this. I think that's been, uh, that's kind of been one of those silver linings.
1: I think so. And I've, I've gotten the opportunity to meet some players I didn't know before. Um, you know, I've I've gotten to interact with Tina Tingelseth through a seminar that we did last summer and to actually get to meet her and speak with her is just really cool. And plus all the other trumpet heavy hitters that we've had through Apex. We get to chat with these people and and hear them teach, and people are more willing to do things online, which is great. You just get to connect with more people globally on a more regular basis.
0: So we're going to continue to talk about you, but uh, the other two people in Apex, you mentioned, of course, Dave, and then the other person I'm not familiar with, Nathan.
1: Nathan Warner. Tell me a
0: little bit about them.
1: Uh, so David Dash is my husband. He t- is the trumpet professor at UNCSA and also plays in Santa Fe Opera, former member of the Marine Bands and Naples Philharmonic. And Nathan Warner is uh, also, he has classical chops and he's mostly a jazz player. Uh, he's a Bach artist and uh, founding member of Sugartone Brass. And so it's a good mix because we all three of us have different strengths. And uh, it's just been really fun to craft curriculum. Nathan's one of our best friends. And so we usually hang out every summer. And so it's just been nice to be able to work with, with him and just hang out and also have this, this business too.
0: Right. And finding everybody's strengths, right? So, I mean, what, what would be one of your strengths or what would be Dave's that you guys all bring to this?
1: So my, my specialty is hire piccolo playing and also, uh, doing poo attacks and finding the sound for the day. And I love the Frank Heen book, uh, Mary Franklin and I also, you know, the articulation and the low Clarks and Dave has just phenomenal technique and uh, his pedagogy is, is just excellent. And so he has all these different practice ideas and um, Nathan has a lot of uh, different ideas with, you know, building strength and the, he's a Bill Adam uh, you know, he goes to the Bill Adam routine and he also has these incredible lead chops, but then he can go and play Piccolo too. So yeah. Um, we learn from each other, and we present these different ideas in the classes. And I think it's just it's just fun to share the the different ideas with with all of the participants.
0: Um, so being married to another trumpet player, uh, now I'm married to a violinist, right? I mean, there, there's a natural attraction that seems like between trumpet and violin. But two trumpets, I mean, do you ever get in arguments about you know uh, valve oil or mouthpiece size or? <laughs> you know, whose instrument is better? You know, Bach is better than Yamaha is better than.
1: Well, uh, luckily we are both Yamaha artists, uh, Uh, and we learn from each other and it's never competitive. Um, we love playing duets and, uh, we're both big trumpet nerds. So, uh, we, we both play entirely different equipment. Um, but we listen to each other and work together. We also have our time apart to practice, uh, so we don't drive each other too crazy. But I've started to bring him on some projects that I have, mainly because, well, not only do we love playing together, but we also uh, want to be able to see each other. Um, especially since I last since I last saw you, I started a new position at full time at Shenandoah Conservatory in Virginia, which is about four hours and forty minute drive from here. And mm-hmm. on top of that, you know, I, I was still touring, and then COVID hit during the hat my first after my first semester. Uh, So going back into the fall, we're crafting a plan of how to live in both places and travel between both places. Plus my touring will start again. So uh, with, I I tour with the string quartet, um, members of the Casilla Ensemble. And so I've brought him on some of the concerts and we've just expanded the pieces to include two trumpets. And also we're commissioning a new concerto by Tyson Davis for two trumpets and string orchestra and so he'll be on my next album which will be my first orchestral album of new concertos for trumpet and so he'll be on that that one piece and then we'll be able to premiere that piece um the season after next and so we're just looking for always looking for ways to collaborate uh so we can I can he can come on the road with me sometimes
0: um Okay, so you hit on all, the, uh, all these things I was going to ask you about, right? So, I mean, this new album that you've got, but it's not just a new album, but this is specifically for new works, for uh, commissioned works.
1: Yes, and uh, the me the, the first work is the concerto that I commissioned. I think I told you it was in the works when I last talked talk to you, the new mm-hmm. concerto by Vivian Fung. And I gave the premiere uh, March 6th in 2020, right before everything shut down. And then, so all the subsequent performances have been canceled, but there's eight more orchestras in the consortium. So they will happen. It's just going to be spread out over the next two to three seasons. Uh, so that's exciting. But I'm recording with Chicago Youth Symphony, which is, uh, I'm from the Chicago suburbs and the orchestra's phenomenal. They play at a professional level. And uh, so I'm excited. I'm, I'm making those plans now. Uh, and it's just exciting to see things starting to come together for that project.
0: These commissions, uh, do you give many parameters? Do you ask for certain things to either be in or not be in these works or do you just give them go, you know, go right?
1: Well, with Vivian, we met in person. We thought it was really important for such a massive project to meet each other and, uh, get to know each other a little bit. And I also played a little bit for her and showed her the different trumpets that I have. And so we ultimately decided to have the piece be focused on the E flat trumpet, flugelhorn, and then ending with the piccolo. And uh, she really stretches the, the the range on the piccolo. And so it's it highlights my strengths, but it also is challenging me a lot. So it's going to help I, I see it really helping me grow as a player the more that I play it. And uh, it's it's really fun and energetic and chaotic. Uh, there's a hip-hop sounding section. It's just a really cool piece with a lot of
0: colors. And
1: it keeps you on the edge of your seat.
0: Do you feel like she captured some of your personality in that?
1: You know, I think she did. Because you. Know, she mentioned that uh, she li- really liked my story of, you know, I started my solo career when I was 27. So I felt like I was very behind. And uh, I, I'm a Enneagram eight. And so I'm just this person that just takes challenges and conquers them and uh, can be a workaholic. But I'm very goal oriented. And I love a challenge. And I just love pushing the limits of what I can do. And uh, just I, and so I think she captured that kind of chaotic part of my, my personality of just the internal struggle, but then always thriving and not, and always taking a challenge. And uh, if that makes sense. And so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I never really thought about that, you know, to say, okay, I want you to write in, uh, here my, like, I can triple ton like crazy, or I've got high chops, you know, but to really think about trying to, to write to that personality, maybe to you would have to spend a significant amount of time around that person, I think, to to get to know, like, do they have a really dark sense of humor? Do they have a sense of humor at all? <laughs> right. You know, uh, are they are they chaotic? Like you're, you kind of described yourself with that. Um, so it's just kind of given me some insight and in maybe to what what composers, what other things they might consider. Uh, ha- has anything come across your music stand that you're like, oh, I can't do that. We got it. We got to change that.
1: Yes, and uh, there was a, there were a few measures here and there where I tried, and if it wasn't happening, or you know, we would just modify it to so it would sound better. like I can do it, but it didn't sound as flashy as it could. So uh, we made some changes in regards to that, and then there were some measures that I thought there's no way I can do this, and then after a couple of weeks, I was able to do it. So uh, yeah, there was like some give and take. With, with that.
0: You know, even talking to Alan last week, and of course, Alan Vizzuti has written some crazy, crazy stuff for the trumpet, right? The first time we ever saw Cascades, right? I mean, you, I don't know if you're like me, but you're like, I'll never play that. And then, you know, after some time, you're like, I can play it. Well, maybe not up to tempo, right? But it's like, all this new stuff, it, it just adds, not just to the repertoire, but it. I think it it adds to uh, what am I trying to get to the, the level? Yeah. This level of uh, that all it's not like we can all just play the row parts on Dante and Allegro, right? It's not like we can all just play the hide. Now it's like, people are trying to play rec stream. People are trying to play, you know, uh, what was that piece that Sergei did? You know, the, uh, the really crazy, Absurdium. you know, all of that stuff just pushes us to, all get better and better. And of course, you know, I will never actually step on stage and play any of that stuff, because I'm smart. <laughs> I know my limits, right? But um, no, bravo, bravo, bravo to you for, you know, embracing this. And I just think, uh, you know, I've heard you play, of course, you, you play beautifully. Uh, and I, I think I first heard you, uh, I can't remember the video, you were outside. It's really lyrical.
1: Oh is the uh, music, music video for Katherine Mcmichael's uh, Totem Voices
0: i it, I don't remember but, you know, yeah yeah yeah, but you know, really beautiful sound um, So it, was that one of the earliest uh, videos you had done?
1: That was a video that I did uh, for my first album that I put together in 2014 and uh, so that was not my first things that I was putting out in the world. I started my journey in my late 20s and I I started by posting some live performances on YouTube and uh, some of them were performances at the BAM Center where I studied with Jens Lindemann. And some of those videos are the ones that really sparked people's attention, uh, especially the uh, performance of Girl with the Flaxen Hair on Piccolo. Mm And uh, I did a couple other videos too in that setting. And those really got a lot of attention. And, um, and then I started thinking of more ideas for, for new videos. Not only, but it's great to have live video footage too that's with a great camera, but capturing that live performance. But I also love uh, mixing art forms. And so finding someone who can tell a story through some kind of like, I was thinking about like, let's make a classical music video to draw in new audiences. And that's what my friend Pablo Camacho from Uruguay has done with some of those more creative videos. Um, and I think you're seeing that more and more now. I'm not unusual anymore. I see more and more really cool projects coming out of, with classical musicians, making really cool, interesting videos to accompany a track on their album rather than just playing on a concert hall. So that's been really fun to watch.
0: Well, this is no longer just an audio experience, right? I mean, don't you think we're now forever in in this kind of visceral? I mean, it's visual and aural at the same time. I think you know, so. I, it, it, it's like the those days of standing static at the front of the stage in front of the orchestra. Well, they're not over, but that's not all there is anymore.
1: Right, right. And I think... Uh... You know, you're seeing more and more artists connecting through social media platforms and posting more video, doing more interviews with people, and it's just—it's just. I think if you don't do that, you're going to be kind of left in the dust, so to speak.
0: Um, your experience with social media, ha, you, like I said earlier, you've already—you were already into this before the pandemic. Um, I'm trying to think where in the world is this going to go? Right. I mean, because we're here now where it's like every day we're posting multiple times online. You think it'll continue this way? Or do you think what, what could even evolve from this? How are we going to continue to to stay fresh and new trying to reach fans?
1: I think this is probably going to last a while. I'm sure it'll morph into something else because I'm generation I don't know, maybe Generation Y, whatever that one is in between, Gen X. And uh, and so, you know, when I was in college, I was one of the first people to join Facebook because it was only for Ivy League schools. And so I remember, like, some of my Facebook memories from 2004 when it first started <laughs> are very different than what I post now um, because before it was just a site for your f- friends at school. And, um, before that was my space, which was not a career thing. I posted some trumpet stuff on that, but it was mostly about just like chatting with people and, uh, having a fun page. And so it's, it's really been interesting to watch this evolve throughout my timeline of being in school through being a professional and just to, and I I, just to see the changes. And I think as long as you, you, we stay flexible minded as the changes happen, uh, that's how you stay relevant, you know, learning the new platforms. Like I didn't know what I was doing when I started my Facebook fan page or YouTube or Instagram, Instagram just started. Mostly. I just was using it for the picture filters. And then I realized people were connecting with audiences. And then I started to learn the platform when my couple of friends nagged me about not using any hashtags. Uh, and then I realized that I could connect with, uh, with an audience there. And then now you see concert presenters on Instagram. It's become a really big thing. Will it be the same in 10 years? Probably, it'll probably be some kind of different platform I imagine, yeah, although I do love Instagram, but I loved, I loved MySpace too. <laughs> Which I don't think it exists anymore. I think you can kind of see broken parts of your old page, but I can't, right. I can't, I tried to sign in once cause I was curious and it's like no longer really there. <laughs>
0: Well I remember there was there was another site called classmates right I, I don't know if it started at the same time but you could connect at that time you know if you could find people you went to high school with and of course I think that probably got absorbed into that but um, it I hope I'm not going to step in this but I think I've seen enough of your social media posts that I I admire that you stay out of uh you focus on you and your music right it's and I think that's brilliant. You don't want to alienate anybody. Like, I take no social or political positions on anything. I have my opinions. But, like, if I want to grow an audience for Studio HFL, all they want to know is, all they want to hear is my interview with you, right? They don't want to know my position on, on uh, you know, vanilla or chocolate or, you know, Rocky Road. And and I'm, I like Rocky Road. So there's my position on that. <laughs> so, um But I think that's where a lot of people get in trouble, right? It's like, let's, let's reach out and try to build a fan base. And I mean, people really are just interested in the music, right? I hope. Yeah. And
1: I, you know, I do share some ideas that I have that I feel very strongly about. Um, And I've definitely lost some fans because of it. So I, but I'm really just posting, I use the platforms to post what I want. I'm really not. I don't feel like I'm censoring myself. I'm being myself. I post funny things, these, this reface app. And I post some real things on the stories. And I, I feel like that draws the audience, too, to get to know me as a person. And I'm OK with sharing some things. And of course, everybody loves Duke, my cat. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll definitely share some things that I feel that are really important to stand up for certain things. But it's not like I don't do that like every single day, yeah. uh, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, well, and I, I I did step in it because I apparently missed some of those posts. So um, it, I find it interesting, too. Sometimes I'll try to really plan what I'm going to put out on social media, and it'll get a handful of, you know, a like, likes. And then I posted a picture of me and my mom, you know, for Mother's Day. And it's like everybody in the world likes it. It's like, wait a second, you know, but I think that's what people really want to see. They like that human connection, Right. And, you know, of course, I, I thought my mom looked pretty good in that. So maybe they were liking it because of her. <laughs> but um, so albums, uh, you say you've got this one coming up with orchestra, but the, uh, obviously this is not your first album. You mentioned the one you did back in 2014.
1: Yes. And um, have...
0: Go ahead. What, oh. what else is in there?
1: Well, I have two more. I have my second solo album, which was released in 2019. And uh, throughout the pandemic, that one was nominated for three Opus Classic Awards, which I was surprised because I forgot my my publicist had not had sent in my materials. So that was really cool um, to be even consider- considered for that. Um, and then I also have Sarah Brass's debut album we released in 2018. So four albums total in, in uh- the
0: works uh it's not like you're not busy Uh, you know and then you you bring up sarah brass again it's like oh yeah so there's this whole other aspect (laughs) and yeah you guys just started touring again was one of the dakotas you were in just a week or two ago right
1: we were in minot north dakota that was our comeback concert and how'd it go it was great it was it was really fun uh I definitely had a higher heart rate on stage, but it was really nice to uh, be there for a live audience, and it was nice to talk to them. And we just had a lot of fun. It was really fun to be together as a group again, and uh, just hanging out and actually getting to play together as a group rather than a virtual video or a virtual masterclass, which is what we've been doing essentially for the past, you know, past year.
0: Right. Okay, so if somebody says Canadian brass, you you know enough about them to say okay, they're this, or Empire brass is this, or Menozzo is this. How would you describe Seraph?
1: Well, a typical concert will have a handful of classical arrangements of some of our favorite pieces, uh, and then mixed in that we have new works, uh, some by uh, some commissions that we've done by underrepresented composers, mostly women composers. Uh, and depending on the series that books us, it might be more popular things, or it might be a mix of some more serious works. Um, so we, I, I did not want to have the group just do one thing, like oh, we we're only going to do new music, or we're only going to do arrangements. I really wanted it to be a mix, and so, and that's how I handle my rec- my own recital programs as well. And so it's a really nice balance because uh, we we just get to mix those are everything together in one show, which I think is really interesting for an audience. And also keeps us really, uh, in, I, I don't know, we never get bored. There's always like, it's it's always a lot of fun to play a show. And sometimes we each do a solo feature with the group and we will choose a piece and have it arranged. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's really creative. And, you know, right now we're in midst of a commission for a, a piece for by Catherine Salfelder. She's writing a piece for us with wind ensemble and an orchestra version. So the premiere of that will be in November. So we're excited. I haven't seen any, any drafts yet. So I'm excited to see what that's gonna shape up like.
0: Uh, I've not seen one of your performances yet. Um... Do you, is there a comedy or do you, do you guys stay on stage? Do you bridge every tune? Does somebody come up and talk or do you, what's, what's the format for the group?
1: So as the years go on, we're memorizing more and more tunes. So we have a handful of them memorized. Uh, we also change, we'll change setup pretty frequently. And it's really easy now because we use, uh, we have our own stands with iPads on them. Uh, for the stuff that's not memorized, and so that makes moving around the stage a lot easier. And then in between that, everybody talks. Every, so the audience gets to hear from all of us, and I I think they appreciate that. They like getting to know each of us and our personalities. Um, and so everyone's gotten really comfortable with speaking and, uh, and with performing and memorizing. So I think the, the show stays interesting. You know, the trumpets, we both have like six trumpets with us. I have like my horde of trumpets next to me. Uh, right. And I just, just because I like to utilize as many colors as possible in my solo shows and with serif Brass, I, I just, I love switching instruments. I,
0: I love that the fourth wall is becoming almost non existent, right? It's, it, I think the audiences like that we can engage them. We walk out, we look them in the eye right at the beginning, right? It's not just the bow and okay. You hang out there and applaud when I'm done, right? I, I love that. Uh, to me, it makes it so much more comfortable to perform. It, I, and I think you're nodding. I mean, you agree with that.
1: I, I, if I had to do a performance and someone said, don't talk in between pieces, I would feel very strange. Uh, and that's completely different than, you know, when I went to school, we just played our pieces, like my recital at Curtis and Yale. I just played the program and I didn't speak at all because I didn't know that you could, you know what I mean? And then once I started touring, it was like, oh, I need to talk to the audience. And so at first I had notes and things and I would wanna just talk about the history of the piece. And now that I've done this for a decade, you know, I'll never use a sheet of paper again. And I'll talk about the piece if it's interesting story. Uh, I know when I talked to the audience in North Dakota, I told them about how my family used to go on vacation every summer in our van and we would drive across the United States. And so every time you know, I'm driving through that area, I've been in North Dakota many times. We've gone to the Badlands, we've driven through, and so it's very nostalgic and it's, it feels like home to me. So, you know, I improvise when I talk to an audience now and I'll usually find out something about the town and relate it uh, to the story that we're telling on stage. And um, we play this piece by Catherine McMichael called Virgo and it's really peaceful and beautiful. And uh, before the concert, we were reading uh, the story about the hall that we were playing in. It was uh, dedicated to this woman named Ann Nelson and she passed away in 9-11 and she was only 35 years old. And she had this like, and then, so, so Jean is the one, the other trumpeter was doing all this research on her just cause she was curious about who is this woman. And so in the concert, she just improvised and told the audience she was really moved by the story because we were. And she's like, for those of you who don't know, she told this really cool story about her that years later after she passed away, her parents finally opened her computer and found this list of like, she had started a list of a hundred things she wanted to do before she died. So it was just like, her parents got to see that. And so we dedicated the piece to her and it was just, it just made it so much more special.
0: Okay. Oh my gosh. Uh, Mary, I'm so sorry. This, uh, spectrum, I don't know if you're on spectrum or, or what, but, uh, Oh my goodness. Um, what a time for it to go down. So I, it said that everything was still running when everything came back on. So (laughs) I'm going to have to edit out a few minutes of, of dead space. Um, okay. My goodness. We were solving world hunger, I think.
1: Uh, yeah, I was talking about the my not North Dakota concert, but I'm not sure when you froze because I was talk- talking for a little bit.
0: <laughs> so I, I think maybe the last thing I, I remember was you said you and your family were driving through. You used to you had great uh, memories of driving through uh, the Badlands and and other places there.
1: Yeah, and I I was I remember what I was going to say now. So uh, for one of the pieces that we play, which is really beautiful, it's a movement of a piece that Catherine McMichael wrote for us called Virgo. Uh, when Jean was talking to the audience, she was telling the story about the concert hall. Um, the, the concert hall in, in Minot is dedicated to this woman named Ann Nelson, who passed away in 9 And she was only 35 and she was a very uh, um, motivated young woman and uh, her parents still honor her every day. And they set up a lot of foundations in her name. And years after she passed away, probably four or five years, they found her computer and they found this list of 100 things that she wanted to do before she passed away. And so that's really led the parents to, uh, you know, just to feel connected to her again, but then also, um, you know, found, have foundations in her name based off the, of these things that she wanted to do. But the things that she wanted to do weren't all career driven or travel, they were like be kind, uh, be a good friend, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that. And so we, we dedicated the piece to her. And uh, so it's, it's just fun to talk to the audience and make it personal if you can, if you feel a connection to the town in the short time that you have there, rather than just talking about a history of the piece. Uh,
0: okay. So on a much shallower note, uh, I used to tour with a, a group and wherever we would go, we would try to find uh, the mom and pop barbecue place. And then mention that, of course, the food was always great. But then we had mentioned that at the show, right? Of course, that, that connection, right? So it's not, as, it's not as deep as what you're talking about. But you're right. I mean, anytime you can make a connection, uh, you should do it. You know, because then they feel like, oh my gosh, they came just to perform for me. You know? Um, so after not being together for how long? Uh, I'm sure you, you guys were all thrilled to, to share the stage again.
1: Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. You know, we did our typical five hour, five hours of rehearsal the day before and then dress rehearsal and play the show. And yeah, it's, it's, it feels more vibrant with some time off. Um, We were touring a lot in January and February of 2020. We were on the road a lot and um, yeah, it's, it's great to be back. And of course I felt, much more adrenaline on stage, but uh yeah, it was it was it was a nice a nice comeback concert. Um, so we're excited to return return in the fall with more concerts.
0: I want to go back to the fourth wall thing for just a second. You know, of course you can do you can break that down with the seraph brass and maybe some solo recitals, but what happens when you step on stage with an orchestra? Do you feel like you're you're limited there or do you have conversations with the music director and say, I'm gonna do this?
1: You know, that that definitely is, is doesn't feel as personal to me. Um, so I really try to dive into the music making. Of course, when I'm playing a show in any way, I'm always, that's the main priority. And I think with a concerto where it's more formal and you're not speaking to an audience before, mm-hmm. um, most of the time you're just coming out and playing the concerto. Uh, the time to connect with the audience is is during the intermission and after the show. And that's the case for any concert as well. Uh, It's a given, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I mean, that personal connection during a concerto, I just commit to the music and I know that I'm I'm gonna meet the people after. And uh, so it's a little bit of a different experience.
0: So what's your fan base like? Are they they bringing t-shirts and albums to sign or they just wanna get a picture with you or I mean, what, what's that like?
1: Uh, I think people like to buy. They still like to buy physical CDs. Uh, I think people like that, and they like the signature to, just to have like a memento. Uh, with Serif Brass, we do more of the merch, like we have T-shirts, and now we just ordered some bags. Uh, so it seems like the Brass Quintet thing people love to buy more things, like like having like the T-shirt um, is is a pretty pretty typical thing for a touring brass quintet uh but yeah I'm, I'm still always amazed about how many people really love having the physical the physical cd despite how there's so many streaming services now but people still still buy cd's
0: but what about you know they want to meet you so what is i mean are they are they little kids big kids you know grown i mean who's coming to see you and and like oh mary i love you so much you know
1: it's a mixture of people, um, of all ages. There's people who love the trumpet who are any age. Um, there's young students who play the trumpets and, uh, and then there's, there's younger women who are fans, which is, which is really cool to see. And it's a, it's a kind of a wide mix. You know, it's, it's, it's nice just to meet the people in the town and some people will drive from a few hours away and, uh, which is which is really endearing. My parents are two of those people actually. If they, if I have a concert within anywhere of 6 to 10 hours of driving, like my parents will be like, "Oh yeah, we'll we'll be there." Right. And they just drive.
0: Right. So it's um yeah, you got to love parents, right? You know. And and if that one person is the, is the applauding out there, you're like, "Thanks, mom." Right? <laughs> uh, you know, when Allison and Tina first started their, their videos, I was so grateful because, and then, you know, you and Seraph and so many other female trumpet players came along because it was like, oh my gosh, finally for, you know, because my studio was not always all male. Right. And so it's like, you can always point them to the old white guy playing trumpet, but now it's like, and there's this there's this one I've enjoyed uh, sending my students to Poppy Daniels. She's like this British jazz trumpet player. I don't know if you do you know who I'm talking about?
1: Yep, I follow her. Yeah, she's great. I mean,
0: she's, she's great, right? And you know, it's like you've got this wide range of, of and everybody's so talented I'm just so grateful that you know, there's now the diversity, right? I mean, it's truly a diverse uh platform. People uh, can send people out and listen and you can get great music and be inspired by anybody and everybody.
1: Yeah, and that's um, one of the things that's really important to me with APEX Trumpet Symposium is making sure that we have uh, equal playing field with with that. You know, our symposium this summer is 50% women, you know, it's, it's half and half, which is really great. That's how it should be. It shouldn't mm-hmm. just be a couple of women here and there. Um, that's not enough.
0: Uh, this year at UND, Uh, Because of things, uh, all the students had to do, we were told to give them unaccompanied pieces because they weren't going to have an accompanist to work with. So, you know, I mean, we have this handful of rep. And then I thought, no, there's got to be some uh, composers of color. Hey, maybe I just coined a term, right? Not just people of color, composers of color. Um, So I find I'm uh, Dolphus Stork was the first name that came to mind, right? He wrote this really cool. I can't remember the name of it. It's a fanfare piece, um, and so I started putting all this stuff in front of my students. It's like, yeah, this is really cool, and we're finally getting to. I think the word you used under earlier was underrepresented, right? And so, again, really great music, but why hasn't this been played until now? You know, it's like maybe the maybe the well, not the excuse, the instance to use it hasn't come until now. So, But I'm glad we've got it because all of a sudden now, you know, our repertoire is just I feel like it's exploded, you know, what we've got to play. Um, Yeah, there's my there's my two cents on that. I can edit that out (laughs) a little bit later. But um, what about you at Shenandoah? How did you handle the studio? By the way, congrats. You know, I think you told me you went from eight to 18 or six to 18 students.
1: Yes. Uh, And I, I I didn't know what to expect. You know, I started last fall. And they were eight in the fall and then six in the spring. And um, with recruitment, it was uh, interesting because it, I didn't know what to expect. Um, you know, this year we, during my whole second year, we've had eight total. Um, and so when I was recruiting, you know, not only did I have Apex, but also Sarah Brass did a summer seminar, um, and we've been doing tons of master classes around the world and uh, so I'm meeting students through that platform as well as Apex and um, I, I've done a ton of trades with other professors throughout the year. Um, I have had uh, 21 guest artists virtually this year. Uh, I just threw myself in it full force and I gave students free lessons uh, in the fall to get to know them and yeah the numbers have exploded and it's, it's, I'm super excited to see where the studio is going to go. We have so many wonderful players joining us in the fall. So, uh, I'm just really excited to, I I was told it would take me years to do this and I did it in one year, a year and a half or so.
0: so. So how does that compare to other studios?
1: Um, I think there's a good amount of trombones. Trombones might be close to 18. They might be more like 15, um, So that's the, I think trumpet and uh, trombone are maybe the largest studios. I I have to check the numbers for the others, but I think it's been a a really good recruitment year overall for Shenandoah. Um, The faculty are wonderful and uh, it's just, it's a great community. And I think people are starting to see that because of the professors that they've hired are really good at networking and social media and things like that. And so the world's getting to see the conservatory more Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I've worked really hard this year to, to put the school out there. You know, I started the Instagram social media account for the trumpet studio. I'm not as active on that as I should be, but I try to share things and then tag it through my page. And then my followers will follow that school and be like, oh, I didn't know you were teaching. Can I take a lesson and see what the school is about? So it's, I love teaching. It's, it's, it's great. And it's a really great way to balance having a solo career. And most soloists are teachers and, um. I think it's like, I feel like it's my duty to teach. And when I was 18, I I said, I'm never teaching. I hate it because I never taught before. And throughout the years, um, just gaining experience, You know, when I first graduated from graduate school and I was on the orchestral path, um, I was in Richmond playing in Richmond Symphony and uh, Rex Richardson was one of my first friends in town and he needed an adjunct trumpet teacher. So he gave me my first opportunity knowing I had no experience, but he said that was how he got his first experience. And he believed in me that I could figure it out. And I did, and then grew to really love it through that experience at teaching at VCU, and then just kept doing master classes. And then Shenandoah approached me to audition. I was not looking for a full-time job on top of being a full-time touring artist. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it, took the audition and got it, and did not expect to get it, or I didn't expect anything. I kind of just, did it for fun and got the job offer and then decided to to try it out. Let's try out full two full-time jobs because why not?
0: <laughs> I, I love teaching too and for selfish reasons, also, right? Because don't you feel like it makes you a better, well, everything?
1: Definitely. I learned so much through my students and they inspire me and I'm so proud of them, and uh, I just—it's just—it's a, a wonderful community to, to be a part of. To insp- to share the students' knowledge that I've learned through the years, and um, and I learn a lot about myself too with problem solving and um, being able to connect with them.
0: Do you find? Uh, I, I, and I remember who you told me you studied with, but you, you can talk about that. But do you find that their teaching still comes through? In the way you teach,
1: I think so. I, I think I've definitely found my own way of teaching, but I definitely uh, have am inspired by watching other teachers. Like through Apex this year, watching all of these wonderful uh, performers teach, like Sergei Nikariakov and Patro Flores, Tom Hooten. Uh, yeah, I take ideas from them, and like I'm going to try that. I like that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to share that with the students more. You know and um, and I think that's how we become better teachers is by being curious, staying curious and being life learners from each other. And that's, again, that's another aspect of the trumpet community that I really, really love. And, and of course, like my early years, uh, my early years of studying those teachers, I think really gave me great building blocks for, for how I teach as well with just, you know, I'm really much into finding the sound at the beginning of the day. And doing your fundamentals and practicing smartly and slowly, and being, uh, and then over the years, you develop those, um, those ideas. And I think uh, I was talking about this with one of my students because one of my students is she really learns best by just hearing me demonstrate, and then she can get it right away. And that's how I learn best is by like if I have a lesson with Jens Lindemann. I remember when I was learning the Brandenburg Concerto number two, I was having trouble getting the range a little higher to hit the high A's. And I had a five minute lesson with him and heard him do it. And then I could do it. And I was just like, how does that work? I don't know. Um, but when you're a teacher, you can't just use your pathway. You have to learn other pathways. Every student needs something very different. And so it's been fun to, uh, discover the different pathways not everybody learns the same way cuz if i just taught the way that i learned it wouldn't work for everybody everybody's different and needs like a needs a different set of everything
0: what were some struggles you had along the way cuz i know my path has been rocky you know i've uh, you know ta- embouchure changes you know all kinds of downstream issues you know what what kind of things have you had to overcome
1: i think um you know when i was first deciding that I wanted to do solo playing, um, I didn't feel super confident. So I had to build that confidence by just performing more and switching equipment. And um, I studied with a lot of people, got my butt kicked. And then my playing really started to take off. And uh, and I think the biggest struggle for me was right when I was really, really making some headway. Um, you know, I was too old to do most competitions. So that was not really a path for me. Um, But there was one left, Ellsworth Smith, that I made the live round for. And I worked so hard that summer. I worked my butt off. And I was sounding really great and really making some new discoveries in my playing. And I was hit in the face not only once but twice that summer. Um, And the second accident was I was just walking to my car late at night um, in Santa Fe visiting Dave. And somebody threw a Frisbee. And I wasn't playing Frisbee. I was just trying to walk to my car and I stopped and said hi to a friend. It bounced off her head and it went right here. It like, bam. And it, my face swelled up immediately. Um, Dave watched it happen in slow motion. And it was just, and I still remember that moment. And I know other people have experienced far worse accidents, uh, you know, car accidents and things like that, and so this is just like a frisbee, like really hard hit in the face, and I still have like this scar that I can feel here, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that was back in 2012. And so I had to change the way that I played, and at that time I had to sign with management, um, and I just got my first big, con- bigger concerto offer with with a with a real paycheck, and you know, and I was like, oh, I have to figure out how to play. This is like, it was a few months away. But my playing changed, and I had to I had to really build these muscles, which I didn't really have before. I was always like a kind of a natural player, but it would mm-hmm. always had its limitations, you know. So I had to really revamp things and learn how to play in a more efficient way. And I think it was uh, a blessing in disguise because it it just made me better. My range got better. Everything got better when I had to figure out this problem. So mm-hmm. it it made me problem solve, and it made me a better teacher. Um, having to learn how to deal with an external injury. Most of us have to deal with that. And if we don't, I know players who have never had an issue, they get older. Well, your body changes when you get older. And so um, now I don't feel so freaked out about things because I know that I can overcome things and, and figure it out.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I've had some major issues this past year, which uh, people have heard in, in previous uh, interviews, but uh, you know, I, I look at that as, okay, at least now I know how to get through that. And now I can help a student that may have to come through that, you know, make that journey later on. So, you know, it's like if, if our life was completely smooth and easy, it's like how effective of a teacher could we really be? Right. Because you can't empathize. Right. I mean, um, you would probably have preferred not to get hit in the face with a Frisbee. Right. But again, that whole silver lining or lemonade out of lemons thing is like, okay, well, here's what I'm going to tell a student that's going to endure the same thing.
1: Definitely. Yeah. yeah? I think we, we, learn a lot through the, through just experiences and uh, that's how we become stronger. And, you know, I, I just, I'm watching the, uh, the, the Last Dance Again on Netflix, the, um the Chicago Bulls Michael Jordan documentary. Oh, yeah. I, I grew up in that era, so it's like very nostalgic for me, but you yeah. know, like Jordan missed tons of shots and had lots of failures, it took him a long time to build up that team and it wasn't an easy journey, but with the amount of perseverance and just staying super goal oriented, of course he's amazing too, but like, you know what I mean? It's just, I always, I, I love that documentary. I'll probably watch it five more times.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, I mean, there are so many parallels between the sports and the arts, you know, and with perseverance. And of course, you know, if you look at a batter's uh, batting percentage versus a soloist's percentage, you know, if if we batted uh, 267, you know, nobody would hire us, right? (laughs) If we only hit that percentage of our notes. So, I mean, we can't can't make that equation, but there are so many things, just the training, the focus, right? And, of course, it's not like we're up against an orchestra or a conductor, although we might feel like it sometimes, right, the battle. Uh, we've not got somebody trying to throw a fastball past us is what I'm, what I'm getting at. We're not competing. Um, yeah, I, I just I love the sports mentality. And, of course, that goes all the way back to what was the tennis book years ago that people were in uh, a game of tennis right? That was one of the first sports analogies I remember, or sports things being integrated into into teaching. But uh, how about some new repertoire that you're looking, uh, maybe um, you've talked about the commissions, but are you looking at even standard repertoire that you're trying to weave into performances?
1: Yeah, a friend of mine who I went to Curtis with, uh, Bill Rousen, wrote a great trumpet sonata that doesn't really get played. He wrote it, he actually wrote it about 10 years ago, it seems like yesterday. And so I, I recorded that for the ITG recital that Dave and I are, we have a live recital presentation that we're presenting at ITG and we each played a solo piece and so I programmed that again. Um, I definitely want to resurrect, um, there's another piece that I commissioned by my friend Joseph Haltman. Um, that I want to put back in the in the mix of things when I start touring again. It's a really great piece, uh, Sonata for Trumpet and Piano. And um, I also am commissioning three unaccompanied works, um, just for fun. One's by uh, Rena Esmail. Um, and I want to really get that worked up and memorized so I can play it at master classes. And there's a couple other pieces in the works as well. Um, so that's, and then, and then as far as like other new things, I just played my first solo recital back and it wasn't like a super fancy engagement. It was, uh, it was through the Richmond Symphony, which I've, mm-hmm. I've kept that per service position, position forever because it kind of, I only have to do like two weeks a year or something like that to keep it. And so I played a recital for them and it was in a coffee shop. Um, and so it was very, like, it was lots of people walking by me and, and everything. But I uh, found these really great songs by Amy Beach uh, based on poems by Browning, which are beautiful. And there's, now I've been listening to a ton of Amy Beach vocal music, and there's so many things that are gonna work really great for, for on the trumpet, mm-hmm. um, and Florence Price too. I love vocal music um, on recitals. And so I think I'm gonna find a lot of new things to, to pick and choose from for when I start uh, doing some solo recitals again.
0: Wasn't Florence Price, maybe I'm, I'm taking the wrong, uh, she was the, the. Uh, she couldn't sing. Maybe this is not the same person. There's, uh, right, she I'm was this sure. benefactor way back at the beginning of the, the 20th century. No, no I think is, you're,
1: no, no, no. She's the um, African-American composer. Oh. Her, her <laughs> symphony is one of her, uh, I think she was the first um Black woman, woman composer to have her work performed by uh, a symphony orchestra.
0: Okay, yeah, I was way off. I was way. Off. Thank you for clarifying that, though. That's, uh, yeah, this is. I'm having a senior moment. You know, I'm getting closer to that age where that's that's a real thing. Um, you, you mentioned memorization. Is that a goal uh, for you to be able to step on stage anywhere and just be free of that music stand?
1: Yeah, I try to. Um, I think it's it definitely helps ingrain the music and um, feel more connected to everything. But if it's a crazy piece like um, like a new work like Vivian's concerto, uh, you know the iPad is giving me a lot of flexibility um, because it doesn't it's not so obstructive like a music stand. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have it there and it's like not that noticeable. I noticed that Tina Teng uses it a lot. Mm-hmm. and you barely notice it. So that, and, and then also uh, I have not great eyesight when there's like bright lights shining at me. So, mm-hmm. um, or if something's, or if it's too dark, darkly lit. Um, and so before I use my iPad, if I was reading music it was often a problem. So I would end up memorizing half of it anyway. But the iPad just, I can see clearly all the time, which mm-hmm. is which is really nice because it's well lit. I can have the music a little bit bigger um yeah it's it's really great
0: well it, and of course aside from tonight you know technology it, my ipad's not failed me <laughs> in a performance yet although i know where the hard copy is right just in case um but yeah i i love the ipad i love being able to uh, i don't have to carry a giant bag with me to school right uh, with everything in it um the the only problem i've in- endured encountered on stage is the foot pedal right it's sometimes not the it's kind of awkward
1: yeah i don't use i don't use the foot pedal um i either work out the page turns or i use this app called Blackbinder. um oh, yeah it's a pretty new app but they we have a relationship with them with sarah frass so they have helped us make our music tweaking the parts and stuff for us so i they've helped me with some solo pieces too so you just press you have the you input the tempos you press start and then it just it scrolls. And then of course while you're playing, if it happens to be going too fast or slow, you can move move the music with your hand oh. as well. And then, so that's been that's been really nice because I don't want to have to carry around another piece of equipment.
0: Right. <laughs> right. Um well I wanna say thanks again for joining. And I want to apologize again for the tech issues. I you know, I I that's so frustrating. Um but uh it's great to see you again. You know, I I know we we're all waiting for that day. We can all get together and share a cup of coffee and and shake hands if that's ever going to be a thing again. Right. Um, But it's great to see you. It's nice to know that, you know, things are really going full motion. Well, it might feel like full motion, uh, forward motion for you. Um, And of course, Social media, you're going to have it out there when all this, all these performances, right? The, what's a website for Seraph Brass?
1: It's pretty easy to find seraphbrass.com and my solo one is MaryBowden.com. But um, easiest way to keep in touch is on Instagram, MaryTRPT and Serif
0: Brass. Mary Trumpet, right? Um, so this has been great. Thank you for joining me tonight. I appreciate it, and. Uh, yeah, hang on one second. I will, uh, I'll sign off here. And again, uh, thanks to uh, Austin Custom Brass for sponsoring tonight's interview. Uh, of course, next week, uh, Wayne Bergeron, and it's May 18th, and the May 25th is Bijan Watson. That'll wrap up the month of May. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I'll see you next time.